everyone. Uh, welcome to Risk Roundup. While data is the life force of a digital global age, the ever-increasing data breaches are becoming a growing concern and a problem across nations. From the high-profile breaches to the low-profile ones and the ones that are not yet known, data breaches, stolen data, and manipulation are practically becoming routine affair across nations and that doesn't appear to be an easy way to halt the flood, irrespective of industries or nations. No industry seems to be immune to the data security challenges at this point, irrespective of personal data, corporate data, or big data. Securing data at rest or data in motion is proving to be very complex in a digital global age. While data security faces its unique challenges, or rather it faced its unique challenges in geospace, it has also been an issue since the early days of the cyberspace. And with the amount of data ever expanding and exploding across industries and nations, knowing what the true values are will become more and more challenging in both geospace as well as cyberspace. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Todd Bell from Global Data Lock. Todd is Global Chief Information Security Officer. He's very passionate about preventing security breaches, irrespective of whether it's a new startup or a global Fortune 500 companies. Welcome, Todd. We are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you for inviting me on your program. So let me begin by asking this very fundamental question, Todd, that probably worries everyone across nations. Is that is any data secure today in geospace or cyberspace? Well, I look at it from a broad perspective that if we look at a small, medium size to a Fortune 500, I'm seeing that the SMB space is light years ahead of the Fortune 500 companies. And the reason being is that they're fast, they're nimble, they can adapt very quickly to their current uh, enterprise architecture to secure the data and in the world it's because they have these legacy processes, they have older systems, they have internal bureaucracy that holds back the enterprise, and it makes it very difficult to adapt to the current cyber threat environment. So, uh, you know, decisions aren't being made very easily. It might take five people to uh, get a single decision done versus if it's a small company, you can just holler over the cubicle wall and a change is done right away. So I think that when we look at... Uh, where we are from, uh, whether it's land-based or, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective or space, that we're seeing a lot of hackers are trying to go uh, using satellite communications for internet use. And that's because they know that the NSA is monitoring every point in the United States. In addition, that the NSA is controlling about 70 to 75% of the internet traffic as far as listening points, and they know that this is a new channel that they can exploit to continue uh, their malicious activities. And so I think we're going to see more and more of them trying to use satellite communications to conduct attacks. Well, that that is uh, uh, very good information, Todd, and I'm sure our global viewers are going to appreciate your insights and thought on this uh, very important uh, topic. And uh, uh, let's move to the new uh, next question. For the benefit of our global viewers, can you explain what is meant by the terms data at rest and data in motion? So uh, for simplistic purposes, uh, we can think of data at rest such as an Excel spreadsheet that could be a flat file that would be data at rest or a database record that is in our database that's uh, data at rest. And data in motion is, imagine if we go out to amazon.com and you're transmitting your credit card information, your shipping information, that would be data in motion. Mm, that, that is a good explanation. Uh, so how do we define data security, Todd? What does data security mean to decision makers across industries? What do they think when we tell them that, okay, we need to secure our data? What do they mean? Well, unfortunately, what we're seeing right now from a global perspective, data security is usually considered an afterthought because revenue is king for USA companies. And this is what makes US, the United States such an easy target. And I'm not here to complain about capitalism here, 
but this is more of an observation. Uh, hackers outside of the USA are using our capitalist behaviors against us because they know that we're predictable. And uh, every executive that I speak to uh, that talks about, uh, you know, what does data security mean to them, they know that they want to do everything possible to protect that data, but they're really kind of talking out both sides of their mouth because once they find out that it might cost a lot of money, they now have a different type of a statement of, you know, at the end of the day, we're here to make money and we cannot be sinking our resources into cybersecurity because we have a business to run. So we have this competing dynamic of trying to run a business and trying to balance the needs of cybersecurity. And for a lot of U.S. corporations, uh, there's a lot of variances where some are very light and some are very heavy uh, for security. And so if we look at uh, the financial sector, obviously very heavy. But if we look at maybe some of the retailers or manufacturing, they're very light on data security. So we're going to see varying degrees of data security. So do they not understand? I mean, some of them, they don't understand the importance of you know securing the data or they don't see the threat. They do not uh, worry about the data insecurity or the security challenges. Is that the reason why you see that uh, different variations? Well, it really comes down to the mindset of the executive leadership team. And I'm absolutely 100% confident that every executive that's working in the United States wants to do the right thing, wants to protect customer data. Uh, and it comes down to just pure economics that they might not have the time, money, and resources. They're running a business that's very thin margins, and they're just trying to make it through the day, let alone here comes this whole new expense of all these things that they have to do. And some of these businesses are just such thin margins that's absolutely brutal. And I can empathize for some of those organizations uh, fundamentally, I think we can agree that, yes, data security should be a priority. But unfortunately, uh, for some industries, they just can't make it a priority. And that's very misfortunate. I see. I see. I understand. So uh, from your experience, you have worked with uh, several different you know, corporations across industries. Can you give some background and examples on the current data security technologies that are out there? And which ones do you think that are you know, probably more effective and that are more in demand for cybersecurity? Well, we think about uh, data security technologies. Usually the first thing that comes to mind is encryption. And then we have also another technology called tokenization, being able to transform viable data into useless data. And what I think that we're going to start to see for some new technologies is a way to have self-destructing data. And the premise and the concept is, is that the second the data leaves an organization, it's absolutely worthless. That, For instance, if we think about uh, credit card numbers in a database, uh, we know that a hacker can get into you know, pretty much every any U.S. corporation and being able to you know, do a return on all of these credit cards and walk out the door with half a million credit cards, for instance. But if we have new technologies that once those credit cards left the database and we had some kind of uh, unique key encryption uh, tied to that record where the data was obscured, but you couldn't use that data outside of the organization, you could only use something on the desktop that you can read that data, then that makes it useless. And I think that we're gonna see technologies that will self-destruct the data because right now it's so out of control. Right, right. No, I mean, that that is probably the need of the time. Do you have any idea if any of those technologies are in development or if they are going to be, you know, we would be seeing that in near future? Well, there's a lot of uh, new startups out there, and I try to keep in touch with, you know, the latest uh, cybersecurity companies, especially in Silicon Valley. And there are some companies that are exploring this, and they're coming up with unique variants of this type of technology. I just haven't seen anything that's been predominant, but I do know that it's on the roadmap, and I think that's what we're going to see for the future of cybersecurity. Yes, yes, that, that would be the need. And that is something that we all look forward to, you know, waiting for the, seeing those kind of technologies come to the market. Now, for when we talk about data security and more data, we hear 
two terms that are very prominent. One is data at rest and one is data in motion. How, what do you mean by that? And uh, what do you, how does securing data at rest differ from data in motion? Well, we have two types of uh, encryption technologies that are currently in play today. So if we think about, if we're going to go to Amazon.com, for instance, we use a web browser to transmit our credit card data, and then that credit card data that is being transmitted over the internet would be considered data in motion. Then when that Amazon.com processes our credit card, our information is stored to perform order fulfillment, credit card processing, perform the shipping, and then the details of your order are usually uh, saved for future purchasing and also for uh, marketing purposes. And that's where big data is starting to come into the picture. And this transactional data, we could think of it as data as re- at rest, uh, you have a mind data that can start to send you emails and product promotions to sell you more stuff. And so that's where the two are really starting to come together for data that gets transmitted, gets stored. Now it's turning into a big data opportunity. Right, right, right. I mean, uh, we know that Todd, nothing is immune to natural or man-made disasters. So what are the different threats that can be anticipated when data is at rest? I mean, corporations, they may think that, okay, you know, right now they're just our laptops or our computers and our servers, everything is, you know, lying there and there's nothing to worry about. What are the different kinds of threats that you see when data is at rest? Well, you know what? We can look at this from a traditional uh, business continuity issue but I look at it from a bigger threat perspective, and that is there's a huge threat to data at rest right now, and that's related to ransomware. And the FBI Boston office uh, last week gave guidance last week to recommend paying the ransomware uh, that where people are getting locked out of their data, whether it be a database or critical files, and paying with Bitcoins. And I'm just kind of scratching my head. I can't believe I'm hearing this. But I also think that as bold as that is, there is a way to counter that. And the way you counter that is you increase the frequency of backing up because we're hearing more and more about these corporations having to pay ransomware. And there's a lot that isn't being reported in the media right now because they're too embarrassed to admit something like this, that they had this uh, data security um, misfortunate situation happen. But what you can do is that you could increase the frequency of backing up your data. So if someone does lock you out, that you have a snapshot of what the data used to be. But there's something really important that goes with that, and that's making sure that you have really strong uh, passwords. And so if you're doing any kind of administrative functions, let's say you're backing up uh, some kind of a uh, large uh, you know, data warehouse or some big data uh, storage device that you might have, whether it's Teradata, not Teradata, but uh, um, uh, something like uh, NetApp, uh, that you're using at least 16-digit passwords that are super complex and that they're stored in a secret server or a key pass device. So this way, hackers cannot be holding your company at ransom you're in control of this situation. That's how you fight back against this. Yes, yes. I, that, that is uh, very concerning if uh, those kind of situations are already happening and uh, there is not enough backup. I mean, the frequency of backups uh, is probably something, you know, that is an issue here. And uh, we need to, I mean, corporations probably have to, you know, work on their processes and, you know, define how to secure data at rest so that, you know, they don't have to go through these security challenges because it's not just the credibility in the market or uh, how it would look. It's also the legality, you know. They would also uh, have a lot of litigation challenges if uh, depending on the nature of the companies that uh, are facing this, you know, this problem. So uh, let's go to another uh, point is that irrespective of data at rest, or data in motion, what are the basic tenants to data security from your perspective? 
Well, we look at three things, and that's the data integrity, data availability, and the data confidentiality. And those are the three main components, and that's a security framework uh, that uh, companies uh, follow. So if you follow those three tenets, uh, you'll be fine. Yes, yes, you're right. Uh, those three are very... On top of backing up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. So nations today face the data destruction, deletion, and manipulation threat. The cyber criminals and attackers don't just steal data, but they also delete it sometimes, uh, or sometimes they manipulate it. And this is what a lot of people are very concerned about, especially when it goes to financial industry, that what if those data get manipulated? So this is a critical risk facing any entity within any across any industries or nations. How can one prepare for such threat? Well, companies are already smart enough that they've already been doing the data backups to prevent any potential tampering or manipulation of the data in general. But my guidance is to increase that frequency and also having a separate password for the backup data as well. So you might have one password for your production site and then having a separate password for uh, where you might back up your data uh, in a different data center. So this way you have two passwords. And so if you do get hit or uh, by ransomware or if somebody is manipulating your data, uh, that you'll be able to know. The other thing is being able to do data integrity checks uh, that if you suspect something that's unusual or you're seeing financial numbers that just don't seem right, you can also do data integrity uh, checks as well between uh, what your production system is and what's been backed up to kind of see the differential of what's been tampered and modified. But the key thing is making sure that you have separate passwords for uh, your production and your backup data. But for large corporations, this would be a huge challenge because it would be so complex to compare two different sets of you know data. So this is probably not an easy task that we may think, okay, they just need to you know check and uh, evaluate. Well, you're absolutely right. It's impractical. <laughs> yes, yes, it would be very complex. So now amidst interconnectedness and interdependencies, how can one differentiate between personal data, corporate data, national data, and big data? Because that everything is so interrelated. Our our own personal data, you know, is connected to the corporate data. That is connected to the national data. And uh, there are so many different challenges. So how, how do we differentiate what data we need to secure and where are the overlaps and where are, you know, the processes, how to define those processes? Well, that's a very astute observation. And I like your question because I'm quite passionate about this particular one because... If we look at the three data types, or actually four, uh, that you described, that we think about personal data, that would be our address, birthday, social security number, driver's license, healthcare data. Then we look at corporate data, that could be customer information, credit cards, email addresses, phone numbers, intellectual property, financial data, business plans, forecasts, and just communications in the C-suite. Now, when we think about national data, we're thinking census information, immigration status, passport data. Now, you take all of that, all of this data is being aggregated. And this is what big data is really starting to become about. And so, for instance, uh, if you have a marketing company that sells information about you to other companies, uh, they have to collect vast amounts of information about you. So, for instance, if you post something on Facebook, Pinterest, uh, LinkedIn, you have property tax information from your assessor's office, insurance data, phone book data, credit card purchasing, online ordering, motor registration, driver's license information, past purchasing data from other companies you've done business, uh, your mortgage. You start to see how this is all coming together and they're building these massive profiles on people. And the reason why they're doing it is because this is Big data is also big money. And so collecting all this data to build a profile on you, this is really, think about almost like predictive economics. And what that really means is this is how we're going to be able to market and sell and predict what you like, what you don't like, how you vote, where you might live, where you might buy, the type of car. And that's where this really starts to be a huge invasion of uh, privacy in general, especially here in the United States, that I think we're going through one of the biggest moments of privacy violations 
in our country because we're so quick to get everything out. And the danger behind this is we can look at this from a marketing perspective and how great it is to be able to sell you more stuff and drive revenue and doing more one-to-one marketing. The flip side of that is this information can be also collected by foreign intelligence agencies as well. And it makes a great way to do a social engineering attack. And if you look at, let's say it's a treasure in a corporation, it's going to make it easier to trick that treasure into wiring money, for instance, because it looks right, it smells right, seems right, you know, because they have all these personal things to look legitimate. And it's because this big data was collected. And one of the last things is I know a lot of people have heartburn about the NSA and they feel like NSA is uh, spying on everything that we do. But surprisingly, what the NSA is doing is actually pretty tame. Big data and what's being collected on us across the board is so beyond the NSA that it's just unbelievable. And so the best thing you could do is stop giving away your information. (laughs) No, you're right. I mean, uh, everything is being tracked and everything is being collected for evaluation by this big data. It's just that people don't understand that, you know, this kind of uh, privacy risk they have by just, you know, doing things, you know, online. They don't understand that NSA has become, you know, very visible, you know, problem for them but they don't understand that big data analysis that is coming their way or that is already happening and they won't even know about it is probably, you know, much more threatening to their personal life and their privacy and that awareness is not there. So you are absolutely right about that. Now. Yeah. And one thing, if you don't mind me adding, um, two weeks ago, I was getting a haircut. I went to this Floyd's barbershop, I guess it's some chain across the United States, walked in the door. I just want a haircut First thing they asked me is they want my full name and my phone number. And I'm like, I just want a haircut. And I get this dirty look from three people behind the counter of like, oh, what's wrong with this jerk? Like I'm a trouble customer that I didn't get this way. And from my perspective, I didn't know if you're going to be sending me text messages for 10% discount between 3 and 5 p.m. two days from now. I don't know what you're going to do with my data. This is why I say no. And unfortunately, I think we feel these social pressures that if we don't give it away, that we're a jerk and we're difficult to deal with. Yes, yes, you're right. I mean, uh, people just don't see the bigger picture, where the information, what they're sharing, how that can be used and whether they want people to know that information. I mean, if you look at, you know, uh, Facebook, I mean, the kind of information that is being shared by people, everything is on Facebook. And I'm surprised that, you know, they're not thinking that, you know, what could happen if, you know, people misuse this information, uh, their identities could be stolen. Many more things could be happening, you know, could happen because of that. But that awareness or that thought process is not that, that, you know, this could be misused. They just uh, don't see the possibilities and probabilities. So that's a challenge. So now there has also been ongoing high-profile data breaches involving the theft, theft of data from millions of bank cards. Do you think the card breaches will decline in the coming days, especially because of, you know, the new requirements that are coming their way that, you know, they have to have that chip and pin system? Well, we have a big thing that's happening right now. I think that we're going to see what I refer to as a multiplying effect for security breaches because it seems like we're becoming non-immune to expecting to see a cybersecurity breach on a weekly basis. And I think that we're going to start to see weekly go down to uh, daily and probably even hourly because what's happening is a lot of hackers have been focusing on the large companies and they're kind of moving down the food chain because they know that, okay, let's start to go after the medium-sized business and let's go after these small mom-and-pop businesses because they probably haven't upgraded some of their point-of-sale equipment, for instance. And we look at the new EMV chip that's been rolled out on a credit card. Um, while that is going to do a great job for trying to drive down some of the uh, card-present transactions and that went effect of uh, October 1st, uh, 2015, uh, this month, 
it's going to be driving a whole new sector that it's going to change fraud from uh, going into a store to online because the EMV chips don't protect against online. They're only for card present. And so this is going to be a new attack vector. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Now, there's also another important point to that is that for the card breaches to decline, the retailers are expected to buy into the new requirement of chip and pin systems and adopt and implement. Now, there are a lot of, you know, there is a lot of concern that the implementation is not going effectively. And if the implementation is not going to be done, you know, in a proper manner, then there are going to be a lot more challenges to this. What are your thoughts on that? Well, as of October 1st, this month, companies that haven't upgraded to the EMV equipment uh, for the point of sales are 100% on the hook for any kind of credit card fraud. I really thought a lot of retailers would have jumped on board, uh, but they didn't. And I think that a number of uh, retailers, um, especially, uh, feel that they're protected by cybersecurity insurance. And as you and I both know, we're both very passionate about cybersecurity insurance because I see your stuff that you write. And we know that there's a very false sense of security of getting a payout because we know that the insurance companies, they have finally woken up. The paydays aren't going to be coming anytime soon because, you know, they woke up. They're not going to be doing it anymore. And then we look at the flip side of this here, that CFOs are making uh, calculated decisions here, that they realize that I'm a large organization. It's going to cost me one and a half million dollars to push out these uh, EMV devices. It's not going to protect me for online uh, fraud at all and that they would rather tolerate losing maybe half a million dollars a year versus paying $1.5 million to roll out something that is only going to cover half of the fraud. So they're making a financial decision that's better just to go ahead and pay out the half million in losses than the $1.5 million and rolling out the new system and having to do the training and dealing with the implementation issues on top of that. But uh, isn't that short-sighted thinking on their part? Well, I think it's easy for somebody like you and I that's very risk-focused and security-minded, but I also realize that CFOs think in a very different mindset than you and I, and it comes down to their economic vision and modeling, and that's going to probably prevail in an organization that has very thin margins because, you know, why would I spend $1.5 million when I could just go ahead and spend half a million dollars on the losses? I think it's terrible from a uh, customer service experience, and I don't think that companies are well invested enough to uh, do enough for their customers. But unfortunately, these are the mindsets that we see, because if I was wrong or flawed with my logic, we still wouldn't be seeing these epidemic of cybersecurity breaches on a frequent basis, unfortunately. I wish I was wrong. But I think uh, they are thinking only about certain, you know, aspects of the payout. They're not thinking about what other, you know, dependencies are on when the cards are, you know, bridged and when the data is stolen. It is much bigger than that. And it has so many dependencies that, you know, it it impacts the national economy. So we will, you know, I'll be addressing that in uh, my next session, you know, probably about the economic impact of, you know, all these different uh, cybersecurity breaches. So it is never just that, okay, we are, you know, we can, we let's, you know, rather pay out this half a million dollar in losses and not worry about this implementation. It's much more bigger and much more complex than that. But anyway, that will be discussed, you know, uh, some other time. So uh, let me, you know, move to another topic is that in recent times, we have seen a disturbing trend in so-called third-party hacks data breaches that focus on the company or service solely for the purpose of obtaining data or access to a more important target. I mean, this is something also that is a very big challenge for the critical infrastructure, you know, uh, corporations that, you know, they have to maintain that because it is not just that they will be hit directly, but that, you know, they would be hit because of the, you know, security challenges by, you know, some other vendors or suppliers that they have been working with. And this is the third party hack that is a cause of concern for critical infrastructure. What is being done to address and manage uh, 
these kind of threats. Well, that's very insightful because uh, for a long time, uh, third-party risk has been ignored for many years. And the bright side is I see this, especially in the Fortune 500, it's really gaining a lot of traction. And so I'm seeing a lot of security assessments underway to evaluate that third-party risk. And I think the trigger for that was what happened with Target. They had a third-party vendor uh, that had triggered uh, the situation that they were faced with. And I think that was an eye-opener for the Fortune 500 of, you know what, we, we can at least stop that and let's do our due diligence and start evaluating these vendors. So I have to say that on the bright side, I'm seeing a lot of time, money, and resources being focused in this area. So I think this is an area that's actually uh, going to start to improve. That is good to know. That is really good to know. So what are the global trends you see in data security, uh, Todd, from your perspective? Well, I look at uh, five things that are going on that are really big because I do a lot of um, uh, cybersecurity guidance for alpha sites and some of the top three management uh, consulting companies and some of the uh, hedge funds out there. And the technologies that I see that are really exploding in this space is endpoint security protection, cloud services on all fronts, big data, wearable technology, and Internet of Things. And I'll just kind of give you a summary of why they're, um, you know, a big deal. Uh, Endpoint security protection, the reason why that's exploding right now is because enterprises can no longer effectively uh, manage their patching program. And we hear about these things that companies are three or four years behind in their patching. And you're thinking, gosh, you're a Fortune 500. You have all these people and resources. But the thing is, is that when you do these operating system uh, updates, you're going to most likely be breaking your applications that are running on these operating systems. And when you try to upgrade the application, that could be a one-year project within itself. So, because you have to do all this configuration management process changes and employee training. And so uh, enterprises at the Fortune 500 level are just becoming uncontrollable. And endpoint security is providing uh, security on you know, laptops, desktops, mobile devices, and being able to uh, prevent uh, a lot of uh, malware or even some of the exploits with operating systems from being exploited. So that's why that's exploding right now. Right. When we look at cloud services, uh, and, and this just comes down to the sheer economics and, and the scale of being able to have quick solutions within 30 days versus waiting for the IT department to deliver solutions in nine months. And so uh, what's happening in corporations is we always hear this term shadow IT. Well, if we look at it from a bigger perspective that, you know, let's say it's the marketing department, they want to be able to have this new kind of service. They don't want to wait nine months. I can have it 30 days and I have the budget to do it and I don't have to go buy anything. I just pay for a service. That's why cloud service uh, is just anything cloud related is doing incredibly well because of the pure economics of it. And we had talked a little bit about the big data and that's exploding. And we talked about some of the elements of why that's exploding. And then the uh, wearable technologies, the new frontier to personalize electronics and improve our health to increasing our connectivity with real-time information. And lastly, the Internet of Things, as uh, we've been here about, and that's going to be a huge future is because we're essentially network-enabling everything that's in front of us, and we're putting an interface on that. And whether that is, uh, you know, an IP camera or being able to see uh, the status of my front door lock, for instance, if it's locked or my garage door is closed to uh, IP-enabled cars to smart cities. And so this is why we're seeing these technologies explode. And this is what's on the future roadmap for companies. Right. I know this is very good information. And now you mentioned shadow IT. And that is something I have been, you know, thinking about for some time that, you know, this is the shadow IT also brings a lot of, you know, critical challenges to organizations because they don't follow the processes and they don't have to go through the same kind of uh, uh, very strict, you know, regulations and, you know, due diligence and, you know, uh, reporting requirements. So what are your thoughts on shadow IT? Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, I've firsthand experienced shadow IT where it uh, can be quite a nuisance and, to be a successful CIO in an organization, you can't be the department of no. And unfortunately, 
being a CIO in past companies, uh, we're burdened with a legacy that's holding us back. And of course, we want to have the smart, sexy new technologies and being able to offer them as a store within the organization. But it's the legacy that's holding us back from moving forward. And that's why these cloud technologies are very appealing because we don't have to wait for our IT department. We don't have to wait for the project manager to come along and get on the project portfolio. It's just, it's uh, something that's quick, easy, and fast. And that's why shadow IT is uh, uh, very popular. But I think the way you deal with it is you have a consultant uh, within your IT department that can advise the marketing department or operations and guide them through that process of go ahead, let them have those technologies, work with them, do the due diligence, make sure that they're safe, secure, and how's data going to be handled and privacy issues and legal issues. And that way you can have the best of both worlds. And I think that's the way to handle shadow IT. Right, right. No, I, I hear your point. Now, there are many who say that security will become the next big front for big data as security infrastructure will increasingly take on big data-like attributes. However, there are also some that predicts that big data technology in security context will stay immature, expensive, and difficult to manage to most organizations as targeted attacks become more stealthy and complex to identify in progress. What are your observations and thoughts across you know, organizations that you have been working? Big data scares me. And the reason why it scares me is that I see huge, wonderful benefits, whether it's trying to cure cancer or trying to understand uh, census profile of people and trying to see patterns and, and using Hadoop uh, to analyze things. But the thing is, is imagine what does a big data security breach look like when we have, you know, somebody like you, you're a high profile individual. And, uh, you know, imagine instead of just your credit card data being lost, imagine all this data that's been built up about you getting lost. And what is that going to do for your personal life? You know, how are you going to be able to uh, recover when someone tried to take over your entire identity to your bank accounts and uh, you know everything that's personal about you that misrepresents you. Uh, I think that is going to be incredibly difficult to deal with when we see a big data security breach. Yes, I hear your I hear your point and I hear uh, your concern and uh, that is a concern I think uh, to many individuals like me and uh, uh, like you also and. Uh, that is something we have to uh, discuss and debate and identify how to prevent the impact of that, you know, in the coming days or in the future, if that is going to happen. So uh, that's what we have this dialogue for, TART, so that we can identify those uh, areas and we can figure out, you know, what to do to protect ourselves uh, in the coming uh, months and years. So now let's go to the other point that, Will we, there are many who say that uh, there is a continued move to machine learning and automation to keep pace with speed and volume of data globally. Do you think we'll be, we will see that? Do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you're 100% correct about that because there has to be machine learning and automation because there's so much data and the volumes are just exploding daily and there's unbelievable statistics of how much data is being stored on an hourly basis that I think the reason why we're seeing this Hadoop, this is an open source uh, tool that a lot of people are using for data analytics, uh, is going to be a really popular tool because it's helping us understand uh, what this big data is that we're collecting. But we also have to have a lot of automation in this process because it's going to be the only way we can streamline this data because it's just too much data to handle. Um, that if you're trying to build, you know, join a bunch of uh, database tables together to come up with a profile, you have to have some kind of automation of being able to correlate that versus trying to manually do it. It would just take you forever to do that. And you need these automated processes to being able to paint the larger picture because the data is exploding, but so is the demand for the data because it's getting us deeper into understanding so many human aspects whether it's uh, trying to solve a medical issue or trying to understand 
what products are causing the loss of revenue to what is the best-selling product in a store in Alabama. So there's so much data that could, you know, analytics that could be learned from your data. So yeah. that's why we have to do that. Yes, you're right. Uh, now, there are, because of all these, you know, complex challenges coming our way about data, security or insecurity, you know, we rather say there are some people who say that in the coming days, months, and years, companies will need to hire lawyers to verify that they actually own the data. What are your thoughts on this you know, emerging development? Well, I love your question. You're like this futurist uh, because, uh, yeah, there's going to be an interesting demand for uh, lawyers for uh, data because when we look at the big data in general, we're taking all these pieces of data and we're bringing them all together but now we're starting to have an interesting thing of what are the sources of that data? Because some d- big data can fig- feed into other big data uh, warehouses, for instance. And so if you're going to be selling your data, you want to make sure that you're the owner of that data and you didn't aggregate somebody else's data. And because if you didn't, then maybe you're supposed to have a revenue stream share uh, with that company and they could come back and try to sue you because they're saying, hey, you're taking our data and you're marking it up and you didn't give us a cut. There's a royalty involved here. So we definitely need to have lawyers to identify the ownership of data and if there's any royalties involved. Yes, yes. There's going to be a big you know, business area for lawyers and there would be a growth area. So great. <laughs> now, there are also some who says that individuals at home cannot do as good a job of, let's say, like securing the money or data, securing their own data. This is more for individuals that, you know, it is being said that, you know, individuals cannot protect their own data. And that that's why they should start using the clouds and that, you know, they have to let the big cloud providers do the, you know, management of their data. Is it fair to compare individuals or companies that store data exclusively on premises to people who hide their cash in a mattress rather than keeping it in a bank? Because some people say that, you know, it's just like, you know, why do you need big banks? Because they give you that extra security. They have the resources. So same way, why do you need the big, you know, data, big cloud providers? Because they have that extra security. So they are kind of like, you know, motivating people that, you know, use these big cloud, you know, providers. Don't keep your data just to yourself. Go online, you know, go put it everything in the cloud. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Jayshree, I know I'm going to get crucified for saying this. And uh, this was probably the most dreaded question I, I was afraid you're going to ask. And my statement to this here is that your money is probably safer under your mattress than in your bank. So okay. let me put some context behind this before I get my butt handed to me after this uh, interview. Uh, this is because there's so many methods to trick consumers to corporate CFOs into transferring money. And because I'm connected with a lot of banking uh, transactions, I see the fraudulent side of things. And while banks are making terrific strides to make this process a lot better, there's you know a situation about a week ago, a CFO transferred millions of dollars uh, to a location that wasn't supposed to happen. The person got tricked, tried to blame the bank, and they were just, they know that they're going to get fired. And Unfortunately, this is a company that's going to take a hard hit, and we're hearing more and more of these cases that it's not so much the bank technology that's failing, it's the hack, the social engineering of the individual that is in charge of the money. And so that's why I know that sounds really crazy that I would say the money is safer here under your mattress, Uh, but the thing is, is that so many people are being tricked into giving their money away and the social engineering is just unbelievable it is very crafty and it is in a roundabout way using big data to get all these different elements that if if they're going to target a treasure they're going to be looking at you linkedin your facebook your emails they're going to try to learn as much about you as possible then they're going to try to look like some kind of a vendor you did business with 
and trying to trick you into uh, transferring the money. So it's not the technology that's failing. It's the social engineering attack of these uh, individuals that are in charge of the money. So when it comes to data, now, do you think, what are your thoughts on that? That Should people just, you know, trust these big data, you know, big cloud providers and uh, put all the data there? Well, when it comes to, uh, you know, big data and a cloud, there's one particular vendor that I really like. And because I've done so much due diligence of them, and I'm a huge fan of Amazon Web Services, that they really have their cybersecurity act together because they're the only one out there that I see that put out a really good cybersecurity story that they tell you how they build the environment, how they configure the environment, what their compliance framework is, who's come in and done third-party assessments of them, and they're being transparent about how they build out the environment. But they also have very granular cybersecurity controls in place. And right now, in my personal opinion, I think that Amazon Web Services is the most secure cloud that I've seen out there. I've heard of others out there, uh, but I've been most impressed with Amazon. That's good to know. I mean, that is definitely something that, you know, we should evaluate further, but that is good to know. Now, many say that enterprises should be focusing on mobile data management rather than mobile device management. Why is that shift necessary? Well, you know what? I think that uh, I'm hearing that too, but I feel that both have to be done. And the reason being is that you have a a two-pronged issue. When we look at mobile data management, uh, we know that, uh, for instance, I'm going to pick on Android smartphones. We know that there's been tons of vulnerabilities with them. And if we're not managing Uh, that data on that device, that means that a smartphone can infect the other smartphone, and and you can have malware that starts to propagate between the smartphones. And so if you're not managing that data with some type of maybe an endpoint solution, for instance, you know, you install a little piece of software on there, uh, that's going to prevent that from propagating. And it's amazing to see that we're really seeing companies going to the mobile technologies. You know, the iPads are hugely popular. And so I feel like we have the laptops and desktops well secure, but not the mobile devices. And that brings into the other aspect of this here, and that's the mobile device management, that it has to stay because one of the things that you don't want to have is if you have an employee that leaves the organization, you don't want them walking away with their mobile account that, you know, that has the email, that has your intellectual property, uh, contact lists, sensitive information about the environment. They could have been a system admin. They could have IP addresses and passwords, configuration settings. And you don't want them walking out the door that you didn't have a way to disable that mailbox that was part of that company. And so you need a combination of both. You have to have both technologies because there's legal requirements. At least for now until we come up with a better technology that, uh, you know, uh, people can just uh, identify themselves, authenticate, and then they can access all their data, irrespective of what device they are using. So maybe, you know, come down the road, that is something that is possible. And uh, so at least, but like you said, at least for now, uh, we need to, you know, address both. Now, it is believed that physical security, network security, and security of computer systems and files all need to be considered to ensure security of data and prevent unauthorized access, changes to data, disclosure or destruction of data. Do you think this is enough? Well, if we look at uh, physical security of, let's say, a a large data center, um, you know, that's pretty hard to screw up. (laughs) That's an easy thing to uh, manage and take care of. And you don't hear about someone that went into a data center and walked out with PII data or credit card information. So, uh, you know, that's why I don't take that too seriously. But we do know that hackers are exploiting uh, logical security controls to access sensitive data. So the thing that I always recommend and so many other um, frameworks, and and that's having a layered security approach, and that's going to significantly reduce your risk uh, for your company if you apply this. It comes down to if this one control fails, I got another control. If that fails, I have another control. So if you do the layered approach, it's going to change your risk profile significantly. Yes. Now, how do you best describe interconnectedness and interdependencies between physical security, network security, and computer security? 
Well, when, when we look at uh, the Internet of Things, uh, you know, I think that's going to be the future. And every day we see more devices that are uh, being placed on the Internet, whether it's device servers for automation, IP cameras, environmental monitoring, electrical usage uh, monitoring, controlling traffic intersections. Uh, these are all going to have to be interconnected. And then we see the IBM commercials about smart cities, and this is what interconnectedness is all about. We see all these discrete devices uh, that are in all these different locations, and now we're tying them all together into a centralized software solution. And this is how cities will become smart through better traffic flows, less population, less greenhouse uh, gas emissions, etc. So that's the difference between the two. Yes. Now, when personal data is tied to corporate data and government data, how can data security achieve effectiveness if, you know, managed in silo? What are your thoughts? Well, when we see this uh, data getting combined, we're losing more control of our data and the data is propagating, thus increasing our risk of your data being compromised because one of the things that's really disturbing about something like this, it's amazing. You could go to your DMV, then you go to your uh, hospital, you know, a doctor's office, and then you're going to go to a store and you're going to use Kohl's and you're using a Kohl's credit card. And we have all these data silos about us going everywhere. And what's happening is our risk profile is increasing that there's a higher probability that we're going to be um, a victim of a cybersecurity breach. Mm-hmm. Now, as more of our daily lives go online, and the data we share is used in new and innovative ways. Privacy and security have become important trust and uh, reputation issues. Can there be a balance between privacy and security? I'm not sure. And, uh, you know, I just look at what's happening here in the USA, and we have lost all control of privacy uh, for, you know, general purposes. We live in a society, we want it now, and we want it for free. And every time you download a free app on your mobile phone to using free services on Google, for instance, who do you think is paying for this infrastructure? And you're paying with your privacy because your data is being collected, analyzed, and sold to to sell you more goods and services. And this is kind of that big data thing that we've been talking about for a while that uh, we want fast and free, and the trade-off is our privacy. And I think that privacy has lost in the United States, and security is just playing catch-up. Now, there are mixed feelings about data encryption, depending on who you are talking to. What are your thoughts on encryption as a means of data security? Well, you know what? There's, uh, you know, we see our current forms of technology. I mentioned the tokenization to encryption, but data can be secured surprisingly without tokenization or encryption. And what I mean by that is, I always advocate if you don't need the data, then don't keep it. So, for instance, if we had a social security number, or if it's a credit card number, or a driver's license that maybe you might want to know part of that data, but not the full data. And if we strip away some of the data, it could change the entire data classification. So for instance, if we look at a 16-digit credit card number, if we kept the first uh, six numbers and the last four numbers and stripped everything in between, well, it's technically not a credit card number anymore. And But you could still find out that, oh, this is an Amex card. Oh, this was issued by JP Morgan, for instance, you find out, uh, you know, enough marketing data, but not having to take on the risk. And so it's just being smart about, you know, don't, don't collect if you don't have to and try to change the data classification. Yes. Yes. I hear you. Now there are a lot of people that don't have the proper understanding of data deletion. Now data deletion, if not done in the right way, poses security challenges what do you think constitutes a secure deletion of data? Because you hear all the time that, you know, when you have, let's say you're using an iPhone or some mobile device and you want to change it, so you try to delete the data and then, you know, you try to resell it. And sometimes people don't understand that they've actually 
whether they have deleted the data on their mobile device or not. So what do you think constitutes a secure deletion of data? Well, I look at this from a uh, governance perspective and a legal perspective. So we know that we have governance uh, out there that could be maybe, for instance, like the PCI Council has guidance on data uh, deletion programs to not let credit cards grow massively, that you have to have some kind of an automated program to scale that back so you don't have a massive security card breach, to uh, having uh, data retention from a banking perspective that things do have to be kept for a certain amount of periods. The key thing is to have uh, automatic deletion. And unfortunately, what's happening is a lot of companies err on the side of, oh, let's just keep it because we might need it someday. And I think that they're a little bit more responsible about, let's have a solid data deletion program that we classify based on email system, instant messaging, um, you know, paper records or faxes and, you know, come up with all these different ways of how we're communicating and using multimedia uh, purposes in a company. How do we uh, break that out and how long are we going to keep that? So if you have a data classification and uh, what's the data deletion periods on that, that's going to be really a big milestone for a company because uh, you get to cut back on your storage costs and, and it's expensive storing this stuff. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I hear you. Now, this is a probably much broader question and uh, probably we don't have very you know uh, effective answer to that yet but how do we how do you think we can keep digital data secure across borderless cyberspace boundaries let's say from a national perspective if you want to say that okay for united states all the data that is uh, created within united states Let's, you know, create some kind of, you know, environment or some kind of parameter so that, you know, people cannot access from the other nations, you know, or the other uh, nation states that are trying to, you know, attack United States. Is there a way to do that at this point? Or do you see if there is anything being developed like that that can, you know, create a secure perimeter around the nation's uh, data? Well, I think it's an insightful question because right now the Internet is free game and it's a wild, wild west. Uh, we know that Internet 2 does exist and that was really built at the university and government level, but it's not widely available to the rest of the, uh, the Internet uh, population out there. Um, my opinion is I think the only way we're going to control data today is using expensive, uh, you know, kind of forced to use expensive software tools. And that's why I'm open to maybe an internet three out there because we need to have some kind of boundaries. We have to have some kind of rules here because right now we have no structure or control of the internet. And I know the internet is supposed to be free, but a lot of people are exploiting the um, benefits of the internet in the wrong ways. You know, look, you know, we all believe in freedom of speech and being able to converse and do anything that we like, but also having some parameters. And right now we have no parameters. And so it forces us into uh, expensive technologies trying to manage that right now. And that's where it's uh, quite difficult. It's, it's a free for all right now. Yes, I hear your point on that. Now there's also another concern that, you know, uh, people start making an effort or taking an initiative to secure the data after they get hacked. There, there is not much, you know, proactive approach to securing data before the hack. What are your thoughts and observations uh, from your perspective, you know, that what you are seeing with your clients or organizations? Well, as much as I dislike this question, <laughs> uh, you do have the insight of, you know, how the real world operates. And so uh, waiting to fix a cybersecurity issue after a security breach is just too late. And I look at this from that, what kind of world-class experience are you delivering to your clients? Uh, you, you know, it, it just shows that you're purely profit-motivated and that I just don't understand the bigger issue of why weren't your customers important enough to you? Why didn't you take some basic security measures? Because when we look at the makeup and the composition of a lot of these cybersecurity attacks, most of them are easy. Yes, yes. No, that's why I think, you know, uh, 
because you share a passion for uh, cybersecurity insurance also, uh, I'm sh- I don't know if you read the paper that I wrote recently about cybersecurity insurance. And that's where I have proposed this framework that insurance companies should take a bigger role in enforcing a proper effective risk management structure so that, you know, every organization that wants to buy the cybersecurity insurance policy, the insurance, you know, companies needs to make sure that they have effective risk management framework that is, you know, already uh, implemented and it's effective. And then only they are, you know, eligible to go ahead and, you know, buy that, you know, policy. But So those kind of probably, you know, controls or, you know, uh, dependencies on new kind of new way of doing things will need to be there to bring that proactive approach because otherwise, you know, proactive is something that, you know, people don't like to do on their, if they are not forced to. Compliance and regulations and all that, they are forced to do, so they do it. But risk management is something that they are not forced to do. So that is something, you know, down the road organizations uh, uh, and nations would have to, you know, think about seriously how to bring this proactive approach and how to, you know, make that happen. And I think cybersecure uh, insurance companies can play a big role in this. So that is, again, a discussion for another time. So let's go to another point that what is the first line of defense for preventing unauthorized access of data from your perspective? The best thing to do is stop giving your data away. <laughs> yes. So uh, some of the steps that you can take individually is to opt out at every marketing piece of collateral, unsubscribing to as much as possible, uh, whether it's uh, you know through some of the online uh, companies that help aid in that to uh, stop getting the junk mail, uh, but also things of stop storing your credit card number on a website, for instance, because I'm starting to see more companies that are giving you the option, you know, like unitedairlines.com or united.com, excuse me. Uh, There's an option. Do you want to store your credit card on there? And I deliberately don't store my credit card there because this is one last place. I don't have to worry about my data being lost. And so I strongly recommend stop storing your credit cards. I know we love the convenience, but convenience is coming at a price. Yes, yes, I hear your point. Uh, Now, data is growing at an exponential rate and creates both opportunities and risk. Where do you see the opportunities and what are the risks facing nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia by the potential and ability to have real data intelligence in real time? Well, there's obviously huge benefits with the big data. It's not going to go away anytime soon. And I know I've been kind of hard talking about uh, big data. And it's probably because I realized that when I'm starting to see instead of these single pieces of data being brought together of what we're used to seeing, that collectively these profiles are being built on us individually. And that's where I have a a lot of concern because I just don't see enough security going into big data. And I feel like revenue is driving these big data uh, collections, but I don't see the security that's really kind of backing it up. I feel like once again, we're in a situation of uh, cybersecurity as an afterthought. And so when we look at, uh, you know, big data in general, that if there is a loss, you know, I'm very concerned, uh, what does the financial and identity theft look like on an individual basis? Because you know so much intimate information about a person. So that's where I'm really concerned about big data. I believe in it, but it just has to be properly managed with enough security. Yes, yes, I hear your point. Now, much of the data stored digitally is sensitive financial, personal, medical, industry trade secret, military, national secret, and otherwise private, sensitive, and confidential information. So unauthorized dissemination or or access to any such data is unethical and possibly illegal and may have the potential to be declared criminal, uh, terrorism, or an act of war. What is being done independently and collectively by nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia to defend and secure such industries, such sensitive data from unauthorized access, use, disclosure, disruption, modification, perusal, inspection, recording, or destruction? What are your thoughts on what you have seen so far? Well, unfortunately, the cat's already 
out of the bag. And it's a free-for-all environment when it comes to your data as a U.S. citizen. I believe treaties and foreign agreements will force the USA to tighten its grip on all data types because right now it's all about money, not your privacy. Yes, yes, I hear your point. And I think uh, with that, let me conclude this session. It was a very wonderful discussion, Todd. Uh, your in what the insight that you provided, I am sure it's going to uh, provide tremendous value to our global viewers. And I hope, because since you are passionate about cyber insurance, probably uh, in the coming days and months, we probably, you know, would love to, you know, have you on our show again uh, to discuss, you know, cyber security insurance. And uh, uh, we would, you know, be delighted to hear your th- thoughts on that. So that's it for today, friends. Uh, with this, you know, we are ending our session for today to know who is going to be on the next session of Risk Roundup and who is uh, what uh, topic we are going to address, please go to our website, riskgroupllc.com. Thank you, Todd. It was really nice having you. And uh, we appreciate your time and patience. And uh, we, most importantly, and uh, we appreciate the uh, effort that you put in, you know, to address this important topic. And uh, we really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege.